is Jason Chatham. I am an alcoholic. Jason. By the grace of God, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of help along the way, I haven't found it necessary to have a drink or a mood of mind altering substance since December 10th of 2013. Um, I do have a home group. The home group is the principal's group of Raleigh. We also meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 o'clock. Um, on the first Tuesday of the month, we read and discuss the big book. Second and third is AA-approved literature. The fourth is a tradition in conjunction with each month. If we have a fifth Tuesday, we, have, uh, we study AA history. Thursdays are our open speaker meetings, and if we have a fifth Thursday, we'll have a workshop. I am sponsored. Um, I do sponsor other men. And I tell you, I'm, I'm here for the same reasons as I was at that treatment center years ago. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a real gift <clears throat> to walk into a meeting, a parking lot, a room, and uh, to know so many people and to have a warm welcome. And um, nobody's running me off, you know, I was invited here. Uh, you know, that wasn't the case for me for a long, long time. Um, but I am not a spokesperson for AA. I do not get paid to give talks. Um, I'm going to do what the book asked me to in a general way to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And uh, I always like to throw in, I hope I explain how the journey from active alcoholism until today. I hope that it's very clear how I found God in that process. Um, my life is absolutely better than I deserve. Old Jim Holmes used to say that, and uh, miss old Jim. Um, he was a home group member of my group. And, uh, you know, I feel very privileged and very lucky to have, have um, gotten connected with the men that I did early on. I guarantee it's made the difference in my sobriety with my home group and the men that I choose to call my leaders. Um, with the guidance, the patience, the love, the support, um, anything I've been through since I've walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've not done it alone. And if I've done it alone, it's because I chose to and um, People still was there for me, even if I wanted to do it alone. So um, it's really good to be here tonight. Um, I don't mind giving AA talks. I actually enjoy them. Um, so it's, it doesn't matter to me whether I'm up here or in the seat. I'm, I'm good to go as long as I'm at a meeting. Um, so I'll start out from childhood. I was I was born to two loving parents. Um, I have an older sister, 19 months to the day, older than me. Both of my parents were alcoholics, are alcoholics. Um, I do not think that's what made me an alcoholic. Um, at some point in my life, I started drinking how I wanted to drink, and um, there was nothing they could do to stop that. Um, it's not, you know, I don't debate this with anybody, but I believe I was born an alcoholic. Um, I started drinking at an early age, and I needed a drink before I ever had a drink. Um, so I grew up in a small town called Willow Springs, right outside of Andrew. Um, it was a good upbringing. My dad owned his own company. Um, I like to say we was uh, middle class folks. We wasn't rich, but we, you know, we wasn't on the lower end of the spectrum either. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until probably I hit middle school. Um, so we had my mother that would that would get us up every morning, cook us breakfast on the stove. Um, we had three meals a day. My mother would always uh, brush our teeth and get us into bed. We had clean clothes. We had clean bodies. Um, my parent, my mom would read to us. Um, so as a, as a young boy, I didn't, I didn't see my mother intoxicated very much. Um, my dad, on the other hand, he partied hard. And... Um, my mom was okay with that. She knew that she had a duty to raise me and my sister, and no matter what my dad wanted to do, she was going to fulfill that duty, and um, I appreciate her for that. She instilled the morals. She instilled, you know, all the right things into me, and at some point, I veered off, and it has no reflection to do with her. Um, I was 
told to be honest. I was told to have integrity. I was told to be kind. I was told not to steal. Um, but all those things were like instilled in me as a little kid of how to manipulate, how to lie, how to cheat, how to, uh, you know, get what I wanted out of a situation. Um, as a young kid without anybody telling me, I felt like if somebody did something for me, I owed them. If I did something for someone else, they owed me. Um, hence the, you know, when I was five, five and a half years old, my mother... This is significant to me, and it might not be to anybody, but this is a, a, a great example of how selfish I was and inconsiderate of anybody else at, at that young of an age. Is, you know, my mother wanted to take me and drop me off at the elementary school for my first day of school, and you know, a lot of mothers love to do that, and I just threw a fit. I didn't want her to do that. I didn't want her to carry me to that schoolhouse. I wanted to walk up to that bus stop with, the, with my sister and them older kids and ride the school bus in. Well, my motives work behind that were that the night before I had went and stole a bunch of cigarettes from her. So I wanted to go up to the bus stop and hand these cigarettes out so these people would owe me favors. And I wanted to smoke a cigarette with them so I could, you know, fit in. Um, and so, you know, before I ever drank, I, I had all the behaviors that would just flood my life and they served me well until they didn't um, I'm not the guy that started drinking because I didn't feel like I fit in I didn't feel different I didn't I didn't feel apart from I was okay in my own skin I was all right with who I was I was athletic as from a very, very young age um, you know, I, I grew up riding dirt bikes, four-wheelers, go-karts, golf carts, BMX bicycles. Um, we had two acres of property out there. I had tracks made for all my ATVs throughout the, the woods and the yard. We had volleyball nets. We had horseshoe pits. Um, and, and what that would look like for me in the afternoon times and on the weekends would be my dad and his crew of guys coming home and they, and they party. You know, they're drinking, the, the ACDCs play in. You know, Led Zeppelin, Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, I was raised on rock and roll, and, and them guys, they, they rocked and they rolled, and they partied hard. And uh, from a very young age, what I seen was my dad party hard, and then I seen him work hard. I realized that we never wanted or needed for nothing. I realized that we had a home, we had property, we had groceries. So from, from as young as I can remember, I put partying, and success in the same basket. So from a very young age, I knew from the get-go I wanted to be a roofer and I wanted to be an alcoholic. I couldn't have told you, you know, I couldn't have called it an alcoholic then because I didn't know, you know, what that really meant. But um, if, if my dad was doing it, that's what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I was on my first roof at the age of six with him on the weekends. Um, I would just take trash and throw it off into the dump truck. Um, and just to let everybody know, I succeeded in both of those things, um, <laughs> roofing and, and alcoholism. Um, but my first drink, I can remember it like my last drink, honestly. Um, there's a lot of things in my story that I'm going to tell you that I can't put a timeline on, that I don't remember exact details about. This, there is no, uh, it's as vivid as it happened yesterday. And um, I was eight years old. It was a Friday afternoon. Summertime, it was hot outside. My cousin was over sleeping over for the weekend, and my dad and the guys come home that evening. And, uh, you know, prior to this, I would be the gopher, and I'd go, you know, Bud Dry was in back then in the early 90s. And, you know, I'd go get these beers for everybody, and I'd take a swig off of them on the way back to them. But I never felt the effects produced by alcohol until this particular afternoon. And, um... My dad come in and said, would you like to drink with us tonight? I said, absolutely. I mean, I had been waiting on him to ask me that. And I was, I was eight years old, but I bet I'd been waiting for three years. And uh, so we went to the back of the pickup truck. It was a red cooler with a white top on it. He lifted that top, and inside that cooler, there was, it was lined with pints of Mad Dog 2020. Kiwi lime, to be exact. 
And my dad looked at me and he said early on, he, he, he said, son, we don't drink this for the taste. We drink it for the effect. I'm going to show you how we, how we drink these. And he took that metal cap off and he threw it on the ground. He turned that pint up, brought it down empty. And at the age of eight years old, I took my little metal cap off, threw it on the ground, turned that pint up, brought it down empty. I can tell you this, from that exact moment until the last drink I took, I never planned on having one drink. Um, that night, my cousin went off and got himself in trouble at some neighbor's house tearing stuff up. Um, I, I helped him into the bed, get, get him settled in. He passed out, and I know that I went right back outside and continued drinking. I can't tell you how much I drank that night, but I can tell you this, that I drank until I passed out. My entire drinking career, I would drink until something stopped me from drinking. Whether it be passing out, whether it be going to jail, whether it be having an accident, whether it be the, the store is out, and then most of the time I would just steal it then. Um, if it was after hours, I mean, something had to literally stop me. And I remember some of the nights, the fear that was set in on me whenever I thought I was going to miss the liquor store. I don't know if any of y'all can identify, but I would be willing to fight. I would be willing to steal somebody's vehicle to get myself to that liquor store on time if they weren't hurrying up good enough. And that was a real fear, like it ate inside of me, like I was scared to go without liquor. Um, but uh, I, I can't say that I drank all the time at that age, but I can promise you I drank every chance I had after that. Um, you know, went to, started middle school over in, in Fuquay. Um, that's when I started getting in trouble. I started, I started wanting to cut class. I wanted to start smoking in the schoolhouse. And that's where I also experienced fighting. And I wasn't really good at it at first, but after you do it enough, you get better. And um, I was determined, so uh, I got in a lot of trouble. And that master manipulation that I already had under my belt, I knew that if I could provoke somebody or if I could manipulate the story good enough to get home and let my parents know that they put their hands on me first or they started that altercation, I wouldn't get in any trouble. My dad told me if somebody swings on you or hits you, you whoop them. Don't, don't hold back, you go straight to them. And, you know, there was a lot of good things that my dad taught me in life, but one thing that... Um, that I look back on and even more so now, the longer I stay sober is, you know, I had um, two emotions. I had anger and I had like joy. And I didn't really know about sadness. So when I was sad, it would come out as anger. And I've carried that with me through sobriety and it's actually, it, it's hurt me a lot um, in, in my re relationships with other people. Um, but he was a good man, and uh, he taught me how to work, and he taught me how to fight, and he taught me how to party, so, you know, that, that was my guy. Um, looking back now, I can tell you this would be the first resentment I ever had with my dad. I couldn't have called it that then either, but whenever I um, finished up sixth grade out in Fuquay, um, he said that we were going to sell our place out there in Willis Springs, and we were moving closer to town. Um, you know, the commutes were getting longer and longer, and traffic, believe it or not, was starting to get worse back then as well. And, um, he just said he was tired of commuting so far, and um, so he did exactly that. And um, closer to town was uh, Millbrook Avenue, Millbrook Road in, in Raleigh. And, you know, that was a culture shock for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a little country boy that runs around with no shoes and no shirt, and, um, you know, I, I love to ride my... ATVs and, and, and have a good time out in the country and, and it was just totally different up there. People didn't talk like I did, they didn't dress like I did, folks made me put shoes on and shirts on to go places. Um, I couldn't bring all my stuff up there to ride, there was no place to ride, you know, in the development that, that we had. So there was a lot of negative things that I viewed that move as. And so I went to school in, in Raleigh and immediately started, started fighting and getting in trouble. And what that would look like is I went through one, two, three, three public schools. 
The last one that I went to, they finally put me out of public schools indefinitely. I couldn't go back. So my eighth grade year, I went to uh, Richard Milburn, which was an alternative school off of Washington Street, off of Glenwood Avenue. And um, by this time, my mother's working at Mayflower Seafood on Capitol Boulevard. She works from 11 to 4 so she could see us off to school and she could be home by the time we got home. And um, so at Richard Milburn, we went from 8 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock lunchtime. Well, obviously that falls in the middle of my mom being at work. So what I would have to do is I'd have to leave that alternative school. I'd have to go up to the city bus stop, catch one bus, go downtown, catch another bus, and get out to my mother. And um, I would see and meet people that I never knew existed um, through that journey of, of the bombs and the homeless and the druggies and the alkies and just, just everybody that I, I didn't know existed in life. Um, I met those people out there, and I don't know why, but it looked appealing for some reason. Like, I didn't want to live on the streets like they did, and I didn't want to be dirty like they did, but, like, they looked like they was having fun. And, uh, <laughs> So, first major change in my life that kind of, I ain't going to say it, it set me off course, but it just added to what the, the crash course I was already on. Um, probably three quarters of the way through my eighth grade year, my dad come and picked me up early from, from school. And, you know, I told you it went from eight to 12, so I never got out of school early at this place. And, um, principal come down got me and, and as soon as me and my dad locked eyes I knew something was wrong and he put me in his pickup truck and we went riding and he explained to me that he had done some things that the law don't look too kindly towards and that he wasn't willing to own up to the consequences so that he was leaving and uh, I don't know that I comprehended what leaving meant when it come to my dad but um, what leaving meant back then to him was he got a birth certificate social security card of somebody else Walked into DMV, got a driver's license with his picture and their information. I would highly recommend nobody try that nowadays. Um, <laughs> but back then, it, it, it worked for him. And uh, the first place he moved was Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, a lot like myself, my dad's first problem was he carried him with him. Uh, it didn't take long before the law was looking him there. So his next move would be to uh, Rio Vista, Texas, which is a small town outside of Fort Worth. And uh, that put him kind of out of distance for me. In South Carolina, we'd drive down on the weekends and see him. In Texas, we couldn't do that. <clears throat> so I'm coming into high school. At the time a boy needs his dad the most, mine's gone. And so I moved down to, uh, well, I go to visit um, my aunt um, at the beach. She had just moved down to Wilmington, Carolina Beach to be exactly, New Hanover County. Um, so I went down to visit for a few weeks and, and just have a good time and try to leave, you know, the worries back in Raleigh and got down there, enjoyed it, ended up staying. Um, I ended up living with my aunt down there. So my aunt was a single mother of two boys, put me in the mix, and I was three boys. Um, she worked a full-time job from early in the morning to late in the evening to, to support us kids. And what that did for us was uh, gave us a whole bunch of free time that we didn't have supervision. You know, the motto for Carolina Beach when I moved there, if this sets the tone for how that place was, was come on vacation, leave on probation. <laughs> um, so I picked a good spot. And uh, what I immediately did was I started running around and, and meeting people that um, thought like I did, that, that talked like I did, that wanted to do things I wanted to do. And what I can tell you is from the age of 15, I've been a full-blown alcoholic. There was people down there, their folks would buy us liquor. Um, I was drinking on every weekend basis, then it started moving into the week. Um, you know, high school, believe it or not, I mean, I, I, done, I done relatively well. I was AB honor roll student. Um, the worst part was my attendance. Um, you know, I was a smart kid. If only I would have applied myself. Um, but then if I did that, I wouldn't be here probably, so. I'm happy with the way things went to, to, to some degree today. Um, but yeah, so I would, I would make it through high school. Um, I got caught up with a bad crowd of people down there. And, you know, that when my dad being missing, I'm looking for that protection, that, that you know, that safety net. And uh, 
I got affiliated and initiated into to some gangs that were down there. And, um, them guys become my brothers. They become, you know, that, that figure that I needed, and they become a, a source of regular money, and they become a source of what I wanted to get and the things I wanted to do. And so I would say for the next several years, I would do a lot of bad things to a lot of good people, and I'm not proud of it. But I always like to throw that out there because it's helped people in the past that, that might not think they can get sober and they might not think they can live a good life because of things they've done. And, um, so I would live that way for a while. And back then, Wilmington was a very crooked town. As long as you had money and you knew the attorneys to go talk to, we would get out of trouble. We'd get into trouble, we'd get out of trouble. We'd go to jail, we'd get make bond, we'd pay the tickets, we you know pay lawyers. and Nothing I did, I got in trouble for. So I tried out for the high school football team, and um, I had no ambition on playing football, but that older cousin that was there with me the first time I got drunk, he was trying out for the team, and he kept nagging me, come on, man, come on, come try out with me. And I said, I don't, I don't care enough about football. I don't want to try out. And he just kept nagging me, nagging me. And I said, all right, look, I'll go try out with you. You'll make the team. I won't make the team. You get what you want, and I will just, you know, go about our business after that. Well. I made the team and I started playing and what I realized is when I stepped on the football field for the first time in a real game, I got the feeling, I wouldn't say sober, but I, I was not intoxicated when I was on that football field and I got the same feeling from that football game as I did from the other things that I would do, the liquor and the other things. And I liked that. And I excelled at my positions. I had a start, in, um, start position on offense and defense. I was defensive end, and I was offensive tackle for kickoff return. Um, was loving it. Um, but then came alcohol again. So I was having a party at my place one night, and um, my buddy has had this Pontiac 6000. It's probably a 90s model, maybe even an 80s model. So if any of y'all know what that is, it's a real ugly car. You know, we called it the Beezer, and we didn't care nothing about this little car, and we would literally take this little front-wheel car out in the woods, and we would hit trees. We didn't care what we did. We was just drinking, having a great time, and this particular night is one of the nights we took off out into the woods on that car, and we got the car stuck out there and couldn't get it out, and so we walked back, and he's like, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to get home. I need, I need a ride to go get the other vehicle. So I was dating this girl at the time, and the first time she ever drank with me, she's passed out. She just bought this Honda Accord, a beautiful car, and I take it upon myself. I can carry you, and I grab those keys, and I leave in that car. And that car never made it back to my house. Um, what's sad about that situation is when I was coming back, I, I got into an accident, and I hit a family that was just doing whatever they was doing on an afternoon evening. And uh, three out of four of those people were in serious condition and had to be transported to the hospital. Um, they were following me on the way back. They got me out of that car, got me into their car, and we left the scene. Um, it took about a day and a half for them to really put all the pieces of the puzzle together and figure out where the car came from. Um, so the police show up at my house. Now, mind you, I tore all the ligaments in my right foot. I went headfirst into the windshield and busted the windshield. Um, I was pretty bruised up. And when the cops got there, you know, I went to the front door and they asked me to step out, and I did. And they asked me first off, what happened to your foot? I said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. I said, my buddy crossed the, crossed the way right there. I was helping move a dresser yesterday and I dropped it on my foot, man. It done a number on me. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, okay. Well, would you mind taking your hat off? So I took my hat off and they seen the cuts on my head and they says, where did those cuts come from on your head? And I said, man, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, but uh, we were out in the woods in the Beezer last night, got that thing stuck, I said, and I fell headfirst in the blinds when I got out of the car. I said, I can carry you back there and show you if you want to. So they asked some more questions and asked why my blood was in the vehicle. I said, because I, I ran the vehicle and I bled in it before. So the, the law enforcement ended up leaving and they never came back. I never got charged. That family that I hurt, they never got any justice served. Um, what they had was circumstantial evidence. 
and they never did charge me. So that untouchable mentality that I got continues to roll. Um, the next big situation I would get myself into is, is right after I graduated. I did graduate on time, um, 30 out of 32 possible credits. Uh, I drank my way and partied my way all the way through high school. Um, to the point where I would come in the first period and teachers would just come to me and say, Jason, just put your head down. Just, just go to sleep. Please don't come back to school like that anymore. Because I was out at the clubs till 3 o'clock in the morning with fake IDs, partying with the older guys. So I made it through school, and I'll leave out most of the details about this, but it's pretty important, I feel like, uh, for identification possibly for other people. But... Um, we was helping a guy out. I had a roommate. I lived on my own since I was 16. Um, I had a roommate. His, his stepbrother was one of us, self-proclaimed. He was in a rut, and he needed some help. So we was going to let him crash on the couch for 75 bucks a week. You don't get a key. You have to come in when we're here, and you have to leave when we leave. Um, so everything was running smooth for about a month. He was paying his rent. He had two jobs. He was working hard and appeared to be starting to do better. And then I come home and the front door was broken and all of my stuff was gone. Well, I was holding this, this jewelry box for my mother to keep it safe. And um, I had some jewelry from the depression that her, her, her great-grandmother had given her and that guy got a hold to it. Living the lifestyle I live with the people I run with, that was absolutely unacceptable. You could have took my stuff and possibly got away with it. When it become to my mother's, um, we were on a mission. And um, the day that I found out who took it, for sure, the police told me who took it. Um, no way around it. We, we premeditated that guy's murder. We was going to kill him. We had it planned out. I had the people there that we was going to do it with. And this is the first time... That God, I, it ain't the first time, but it's a real noticeable time that God intervened in my life because I was fixing to kill him that night and we were in the middle of the street and a car turned on my road and I lived at the back of a neighborhood and traffic ain't coming through that road at 3 o'clock in the morning. And this morning, somebody did turn on the road and when the headlights come across all of us, I went this way, he went that way, I threw the gun in the bush and then I went back to try to find this guy and I couldn't find him anywhere. He'd gotten away. And he had gotten somebody's front porch, and he got some help, and he got taken to the hospital. Um, he would stay in New Hanover County ICU for 19 days. They lost, almost lost him three different times. Um, again, the people I run with, the things we do, we sent threats to him that if he, if he testified in court, that, that would be it. We'd finish the job. He ended up going to Pennsylvania, where he's from, and finishing out, getting well up there. And, um, this, this time when the cops come to me, they have more than circumstantial evidence. Um, they indicted me on some pretty hefty charges when I was 18 years old. Um, I went to jail where I couldn't make bail immediately. Um, my dad had, had gotten caught in the process of my high school years and went and served his time. So he was out at the time that I committed this crime. And he was back home here doing, running his business again. And, um, so I think it took him about two weeks, but he posted my bond finally, and my terms of release were to leave New Hanover County and, and not come back unless it was for court. So I left there and went to New Bern for a while, working for a roofing company with one of my good friends. Um, and then I ended up venturing my way back home to work for my dad. Um, a lot of money to an attorney. Um, the final say-so and, and what I did for that was 90 days suspended sentence, two years probation, no restitution. So once again, my untouchable mentality is just fueled again. I mean, 90 days, I can do that standing on my head. You know, um, I did violate the probation. I did go do my time, but that's, that was not justice for that guy and what we did either. So I'm back home, I'm working for my dad. Um, another important thing that happened when I was 18, I had a child. Um, I got a girl pregnant. When she come to me and told me she was pregnant, this is how self-centered and selfish and just did, could care less about anybody else. She told me she was pregnant with my child and I immediately went to cussing her and telling her how I knew she had been cheating on me the whole time, that that ain't my child and if she's pregnant, she needs to just get out of my life. And she did that, and 
And uh, when that little girl was six months old, I got a phone call. I needed to come down and take a DNA test in Wilmington. Um, when the results come back, it was 99.99% sure that that was my daughter. And so I would start seeing my daughter then. I would start bringing her back to Raleigh. Um, tried to rekindle with, with their mom and uh, probably wouldn't believe it if I told you, but she got pregnant again. Um, <laughs> we had a little boy that time. Me and her busted up. It was never. I never had. I never formed positive relationships in any in any form when I was drinking. I cared nothing about the women I was with. I cared nothing about um, those children. Unfortunately, I just only thing I was concerned with was drinking and getting exactly what I wanted. Um, so I met another woman, and you probably wouldn't believe me if I told you, but very shortly after my son, I got her pregnant. So. One thing for sure is I know how to drink and I know how to have kids. Um, and it wouldn't be too long after that. You probably wouldn't believe me if I told you, but she got pregnant again. So I had a little girl, a little boy, a little girl, and a little boy. And I'm glad to check in and let y'all know there is no more children. <laughs> and I went to my dad's house one afternoon and uh, he was tore up and he was out back working. And, you know, I went back there. I said, Dad, you, you know, you just need to go in the house. You just need to, to settle in for the night. You're tore up. You don't need to be back there doing what you're doing, using nail guns. And, you know, oh, I'm fine. And I finally talked him into going inside. It was getting dark. And um, I, hugged my, I hugged my dad's neck. I gave him a kiss on the cheek. And I said, I'll see you in the morning for work, Pops. And uh, he said, all right, boy, I love you. And, uh, I didn't know when I walked off that porch and went home that would be the last time I seen him alive. Um, my dad lost his life that night as a direct, direct result of alcoholism. Um, I was 23 years old. I felt like I had just gotten my dad back and we had just built, started to, to mend some of the things that I was resentful over of him being absent. And, um, and, he, and he, he, he checks out of here. And I would love to say that that put me on a course that said I need to do something about my drinking, but it put me deeper, harder, and into just a spiral that I couldn't get out of. And um, Great guy that a lot of y'all know, um, Randy. Um, he's a home group member at my group. He is my godfather. He was the third person to hold me when I was born. Him and my dad were best friends. And uh, I run into him one time at Lowe's in Garner, and he looked at me. And, of course, I didn't even have to tell him what I was up to. He, he just knew in tears in his eyes and said, Jason, if you ever want a way out, I found one. He gave me his phone number and told me to call him. So my dad passed in June of 09. In September of 2010, I took Randy up on that offer. I gave him a call. Of course, he come immediately, and um, I had a fifth of, fifth of whiskey in my hand, and he was going to carry me to a treatment center. I said, well, can I bring this with me? And he was like, absolutely not. You can drink as much of it as you want now, but you ain't bring that in my truck. And I, I was kind of upset about that. So I just turned that bottle up and, and took as much on as I could and got in that truck, and I headed off to a local treatment center. And uh, I would check in that place, and... I don't remember a whole lot. I know that I wasn't there to get sober. I do know that for sure. Um, I just wanted the pain to ease up a little bit because liquor was no longer taking the pain away that I had inside. It was that soul sickness that liquor took care of for a long time, and at this point, it's not taking care of it anymore. It's not taking that away. I'm just as miserable after I can barely walk than I was before I took my drink that day. And once I start, I can't stop, so I'm in in and out of jail all the time. I'm, I'm catching charges. I'm, it's, just, it's just a bad deal. I'm not being available for my children. I'm not with their mothers anymore. Um, I was just on a destruction course. And I sat still in that treatment center for about, about 27 or 28 days maybe, and this treatment center was meant to go a lot longer than that. Um, but here's the thing. You know, I sat there and I heard... doctor's opinion and for the first time in my life I could finally put words with my feelings I didn't know about the physical allergy that I suffered from I didn't know about the mental 
twist that I would convince myself each and every time that I can do it differently this time, I can manage better, if I can just drink beer and not liquor, if I can just go dry out for 20, 30 days. So I stayed at this place, and the day I left there, I can tell you that I did not plan on drinking. I planned on leaving. I told Mr. Rayford, I said, look, I promise you I'm not leaving, leaving here to go drink. He done all but begged me to stay there. And I, I left that facility, and I would love to say I put together some sobriety, but it lasted as far as the Helen Place to the Exxon. And I went in there to get me a pack of Newports, and like autopilot, I got two tall boy bush ice, uh, butt ices. I drank those beers, and I was off to the races again. Never meant to be. And it never even crossed my mind what I was doing when I bought those beers. Um, so the next three years of my life would be 75% of that I was incarcerated. Um, I'd love to tell you I stayed sober and, and took advantage of the AA meetings in the penitentiary. I did not. I did go to the meetings for coffee and cookies. I did go in there to, to get out of the dorms and that kind of thing. And I knew that they was doing good for themselves, but I still at that point didn't know that it could be good for me. So I would go and I would just sit and I don't know what they said ever in there. I was just there just to take up a seat. And I would, the day of my release, I had a fella come pick me up and I was pretty far out of town. Um, my best thinking was 10 minutes into the ride, I need to go to the liquor store. I went to the liquor store and I didn't buy an airplane bottle, I didn't buy a pint or a fifth, I bought a half gallon of liquor first day out of penitentiary. And I tell you this, I, I couldn't stop again. So in October of 2013, I would catch more charges with aggravating factors to them. I would go to court for the first appearance and I'm looking at two more years in the penitentiary. I tell my attorney, activate my sentence. If I keep going out here, I'm gonna die. Um, he said, okay, we can do that. God intervened before that next court date checked back into the Hill and Place of Wake County on December 9th of 2013. I was beat, I was bankrupt in every area of my life. Physically, mentally, financially, I had nothing. I had nobody and nothing. I'd burn all the bridges. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Um, I hadn't talked to my mom in three years. I hadn't seen my sister in a year and a half. I mean, I was literally just roaming an empty shell of a person. So what I did differently, when I woke up on December 10th of 2013, I, that's the day I've been sober since, every one, one day at a time. And what I can tell you I did differently is I asked a guy real early on. I didn't know him. I didn't know of him. I didn't. I just, I knew I needed help, and I needed to get into a book about Alcoholics Anonymous. So I asked a guy, Chris, to sponsor me, and he said he would. And I tell you, I still, when people ask me, I still direct my sobriety to that guy. He's the one that led me to be a recovered alcoholic. He's the one that initially spent the time and read that book line for line to me. We prayed, we wrote, and the fifth step is the first, the fourth step done a number for me. One through three was just like I was doing it just because. Because I can tell you this right now, me and God didn't have a good relationship at that point, but I knew that Chris had one. I'd been introduced to AA at this point, so, the power greater than myself when I first got sober was Chris, the Healing Place, and Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. And that worked for me. Through the process of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, just like it guarantees, I did form and build a relationship with God. I started praying differently. I started understanding differently. I started some meditation. Um, I started having these situations that I couldn't explain. And I would get overwhelming sensation of something much bigger than myself is intervening in this, like the court date and, and the whole ordeal that went on there. It was a true gift from a, from a judge, and uh, I was able to stay free. The fourth step, I'd never done anything like that before, so it showed me how dirty, slimy, grimy of a person I'd actually been in my life. And... For the first time, I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I knew that I'd done all those things, but I had never taken a look at this stuff in depth, sober-minded. 
and, and I, I was disgusted with myself. So Chris tricked me. I didn't know that I was taking that fourth step to do my fifth step. I never asked that question. <laughs> so he just tells me to bring my notebook, come to his house. And I did that, and he's like, all right, now I need you to. I'm like, what? <laughs> we go through the whole process. At the end of it, he looked at me and said, Jason, this is life or death for you. Have you omitted anything? Have you left anything out? And I just dropped my head, and I said, how did you know? And I just blurted it all out. And the worst things that I thought I'd done before he immediately started sharing his experience with me, he had done the same things that I had done. And that was a true gift because I, I didn't feel this big at that point. I was like, man, I'm not the only one that's that sorry. And I've seen his life is, is in, good, in a good place. And, and the amount of fear it took me to walk through that fifth step and, and say all those things, I drank to every time. I never had walked through that much fear sober. I would always drink to it. I would always fix it. And I knew, I knew that I was dedicated to doing these 12 steps, and I knew if they didn't work that I would just continue drinking and I would know that it didn't work. But here I stand. Um, I didn't have a driver's license. I left that place. I went to a recovered living house. Um, sober living environment. I, I lived with other men for three and a half years and I was not incarcerated. Um, I did that because I, I, God had me there. God didn't give me a great job to start with. I was working dead-end jobs. I just I remember sitting on the front porch of the house I was living in. I just looked up and I said, God, is this really what I got sober for? Like, I don't have any money hardly. Like, I'm paying my bills, but I, I, don't, have, I don't have any driver's license. I don't have any transportation. But I was sober, I had everything I need, I had food, I had lights, and at this point, I can tell you, the first year after I left the Hillen Place, I can count on one hand how many times I didn't go there in a day. I was sponsoring 15 or 16 guys, Miss Susie, I'll never forget when I called Miss Susie and asked her, how do you do what you do? She, she broke it down for me, I'm serious, and she taught me how to sponsor multiple guys at one time and how to, how to get them started in the book together to do the step work individually, but, but Jason, you're killing yourself, group them up. And I've always used that, and, and God put people like that in my life for a reason, because I needed it. I was just devoting all of my time to the Hill and Place. I can tell you this, the Hill and Place, I never looked at, looked at it like it was recovery. Um, what the Hill and Place did is it gave me a place to recover at. Um, I was introduced to the principal group of Raleigh early on, I think 30 or 45 days after I was there, I was able to leave and start going to outside meetings. I made principal's group, my home group, and the group, the AA group, the sponsorship, and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is what I found through the Hill and Place. It was just a stepping stone. Um, About three and a half years in, I, you know, my driver's license was revoked twice permanently. Um, I was never to drive again in the state of North Carolina. Um, they gave me this hearing after I paid a whole bunch of money, and the cool thing was I took a couple guys from my home group with me that were willing to go be um, character wit or character witnesses. And I had this moped that I had bought, and I rode that moped for two and a half years. Rain, shine, hot. Cold. I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, the coldest morning I rode that moped to work with the wind chill was seven degrees. Cold. But that. But but Steve and the men in my home group taught me that I wasn't going to go buy a car like I thought and just wear my seatbelt and be careful. You know, just drive careful until I can get a driver's license. They told me it's hard to live a spiritual life when you wake up every morning, walk out, and you know you're breaking the law. It's not how we do it. That's not how you're going to do it. You've got to think of something different. And so I got a moped. And I, I, I was religious to that moped. I mean, it, it, it rode me a long, long ways. And um, long and short of it, the men were able to go in there and tell them that they hadn't seen me ever operate a motor vehicle, that I'd been on that moped for years now, doing exactly what I was supposed to do, that I'd been sober for three and a half years, that I was a part and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I was doing what I was supposed to do as a person in society. And that lady felt the need to give my driving privileges back. And uh, it wasn't long after that, um, 
got a truck. I was working for a tree service. I put in my notice. Uh, I went to work for myself. And I've been doing that ever since as well. Um, I think it was about four years, maybe a little shy of four years into my sobriety. I started um, being able to drive to Wilmington to see those two kids in Wilmington that I had. Um, that started out by letters, by good sponsorship. Dean told me that no matter what you do, you need to be consistent. If it's consistent writing letters, if it's consistent with phone calls, whatever you're available to do for them children, you need to make sure it's consistent. And, and I took what he said and I applied it into my life and that relationship with the children had grown. Um, it went from me driving to Wilmington just to sit for lunch and then drive back to them children can come to my house and stay. They got their own beds in my house. Um, my children and Andrew, um, you know, it's, it's hit and miss with them. Um, they love me. I know they love me. But the things that I'd done while I was drinking has affected them. Um, it affected the person that I had those children with. Uh, we don't really see eye to eye on much. I do my best to get along and try for the kids, but you know, it just for whatever reasons it's tough. But um, you know, we went to his football game a couple weeks ago. He's playing football now, and I'm just super proud of him. Um, so I got all these great things going in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got all this stuff going on, and, and my sister decides that she's going to drink again, and, um, you know, she, she ended up drinking, and we ended up trying to help her. She would come in and out, in and out, and uh, then I would run into her in the Walmart parking lot in Garner, and, uh, you know, much like my father, um, God gave me a gift that afternoon. She was going to walk straight past me and not speak. I said, Jennifer, what are you doing? And she stopped and she spoke to me for just a couple minutes. And before she walked away from me, I, I hugged her neck and I kissed her on the cheek and I told her that I loved her and I'd see her soon. And I did not know that that would be the last time I would see her alive either. Um, direct result of alcoholism took her life. She was put down into a ditch like a piece of trash, you know, and I just thought back to myself how many times I put myself in that position, how many times I took things way too far, you know, why her and not me? I was mad at God. I had to do a lot of work. I had to do a lot of soul searching. And I can tell you this, Alcoholics Anonymous in my home group just wrapped their arms around me. They carried me till I could walk, and then when I could walk, they walked hand in hand with me. And through good sponsorship again and being faithful to my home group and having service commitments and being rooted all the way in AA, I never thought about a drink. I was able to be there for my mother. My mother's five and a half or six years sober now. Um, you know, we was able to walk through that together. And, you know, I've bought a house and I've, I've got stuff. You know, I've got stuff. And one thing that I can tell you that I walk with and I know deep down in my heart, even if I don't show it a whole lot, that I could lose all my stuff. My Harley, my trucks, my business, my house, my money. All that stuff could go away. And one thing I know absolutely without a second thought is that I'll be okay. I'll be okay. That I have a program that absolutely works, even through loss of like that. Um... One thing I figured out that my sister done for me, if there was ever a reservation, that would have been it. Um, there is no reservations within my soul. I know to the cellular level that I'm an alcoholic. I know that one drink, and I'm, I'll die. And for me, I probably won't die physically, but spiritually, I'll be dead immediately. And then I won't be able to quit. And then I'll be off to the races, and I'll lose everything I have. Um, I have a wonderful woman in my life, engaged to be married. Um, I just bought a puppy yesterday. <laughs> like, that little dude brings me so much joy. And, like, 
His name's Bentley. <laughs> you know, and he's a little, he, he'll only get eight or nine pounds. Like, I didn't want this big, massive dog or nothing. I just, I told Casey, I said, babe, I want a, I want a lap dog. <laughs> I want a little dog that can live in the house, and I don't want it to shed, and I don't want all that. So we've done our investigations, we've done our research, and we found a breed of dog that doesn't shed, and he's hyperallergenic for a little cam man. You know, he's got some allergies to the dogs, and um, so we the best of both worlds, and um, we've recently moved in together. Um, has it always been easy? Absolutely not. Me and Casey's been through a lot, and we've stood tall through it. Um, I can tell you that our best days come when we're centered with God, when we're waking up in the morning and we're praying and we're, we're doing our readings, um, when we're coming together to these AA meetings and we're doing retreats like we just did last weekend and we're, we're fully locked in is when, when our relationship is the best. And we can always tell when, when we get off, we start looking back and seeing what we've dropped off and, that, and it all, never fails that we've stopped doing stuff that we were doing. So again, Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps can, can provide anything that I need so long as I stay close to it. I'm out of time, but I can tell you this, uh, they're getting started over at my home group right now. Um, this is one of the very few reasons that I will miss my home group. Um, went through a lot th this year. My granddaddy passed away, which I've become really close to. Um, that was a hard deal. I sat and held his hand and while he took his last breath. That was a true honor. That man knew where we stood. Um, things were good. There was nothing left unsaid, no stone turned, left unturned. My aunt just successfully and, and uh, went through brain surgery yesterday. She had a tumor on her brain. We didn't know how that was going to go. She's in a regular room now, talking, walking. She's good. God is good. And um, I can tell you this, all of my family members, they don't know what we do here, but they love the, They love y'all. They love this place and they love this program because they have watched my life go from what it was to where they disowned me to where I'm a part of the family and I'm invited to all the events. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just beyond grateful that I have those kids in my life, that I have Casey in my life and, and her kids, that I have Alcoholics Anonymous, my dog, my mother. I'm just eternally grateful for this program and all the men and women that's paved the road for me to get where I'm at today. Uh, I love AA, uh, I love my life, and I love y'all. Thank you.